0: day that's going to be. We've been thinking together about hope and what the Bible has to say about hope. Remember we talked about the fact that uh, we Christians were very different from one another in so many different ways, but there are three things we have in common, faith, hope, and love. And uh, most of the time when Paul writes to a church, he always mentions these three uh, qualities of our faith, our hope, and uh, our love. And so we're looking at the fact that oftentimes the Bible uh, attaches our hope to the return of Jesus, that when he comes back, there's a number of things that are going to happen that will directly affect us, and they produce inside of us a hope, a genuine uh, kind of hope. So again, back in uh, Peter, uh, we read that, you know, from Peter, he tells us that when we became a Christian, we were born into a living hope. Um, let me just read it for you. In, in 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, and verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. Now, hope in the Bible is not like wishful thinking, like we use the word hope today. Hope in the Bible is confidence in God's word and in God's truth uh, so that we're absolutely confident and we make adjustments in our lives based on the fact that God has made certain promises to us uh, in the future. And so hope is a very significant part of our lives. And the Bible says uh, that we as Christians are people who are born again to a living hope. In other words, Uh, we live off of this hope. It's alive, and when it gets inside of us, it changes the way we live, and we become infected, if you will, with this reality of God's promises that have to do uh, with what's coming in the future. Again, not wishful thinking, but confident living. And uh, then Peter goes on, and he says in the fifth verse here, he says that uh, God's power is guarding uh, through our faith us for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. Again, we're looking at this great promise of our salvation. Uh, Remember we talked about this? We talked about uh, the already but not yet. And uh, yes, we are saved, but you know what? We haven't experienced the full-blown salvation that God has prepared for us, but we're looking forward to it. It's going to be a great thing. It's going to be ours. We have a fantastic future according to the scriptures much of it tied around when Jesus returns. And so by the time Peter gets uh, down through this first chapter in the 13th verse, he says, therefore, in other words, if this is all true, then therefore, what should we be doing, right? Therefore, prepare your minds for action and be sober-minded and set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be ours when Jesus comes back. What a great day. What a fantastic future. And that becomes a part of this kind of living hope uh, that uh, God would build into us through his spirit and through what he's done for us in the past. When Paul wrote to the Colossian church in Colossians chapter 1, again, he mentions this faith, hope, and love, but listen to the way Faith and love are dependent upon hope. Do you want to grow in faith? Do we want to grow deeper in faith? Do we want to grow more uh, effective in our love for one another and for uh, our neighbors and the people in the world and so forth? Here's what Paul says. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints Because of the hope laid up for you. Faith and love are because of what we know is coming down the road. And I'm going to tell you, I think if you don't have this kind of hope that's real enough to affect us, uh, we struggle then with going, we weren't willing to make the sacrifices that are necessary to go deeper in our faith, and to uh, love better in our marriages and families and with our neighbors and friends and so forth, we won't make the sacrifices until we know that what's waiting for us and what's coming is well worth and way better than any sacrifices we might make in order to develop our faith and move forward in the way that we love like Jesus loves us. And so he says, your faith and your love, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, Of this you've heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. The second coming is part of the gospel. When we talk about the gospel and we talk about the good news and we talk about what God has done for us and will do for us, uh, hope becomes a a big part of that. And then in the Thessalonian letters, where uh, we've been trying to uh, base all of our thoughts and take in other scripture around the Thessalonian letters, the Thessalonian letters are loaded with practical exhortations uh, for contemporary living based on the sure hope of Christ's return. And uh, there are many adjustments that uh, Paul calls for in the Thessalonian letters, but they're all based on Jesus' return. All eight chapters of these two letters talk about the return of Christ. All eight chapters of First and Second Thessalonians. And uh, I'm thinking that... Um, <clears throat> The Apostle Paul is probably uh, maybe looking at a Roman soldier. And uh, the Roman soldiers, you know, they had uh, uniforms, and part of their uh, uniform uh, included two defensive pieces of armor, right? They had the breastplate to protect their heart and their vital organs and so forth, and they had a helmet which protected their thinking, uh, protected their heads, obviously. Uh, where we do our thinking. And so these two pieces of armor in First Thessalonians uh, 5 and verse 8, the Apostle Paul, you know, uh, talks about these two pieces of armor like this. He says, uh, But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope, the hope of our salvation." And so these two pieces of defensive armor, how do we protect our hearts? How do we protect our thinking? You know, uh, well, we, uh, if you're a Christian, uh, we've been given a helmet to protect our thinking, uh, the helmet of hope, uh, which means, I think, no matter how bad things get, no matter how dark the night, no matter how big the obstacles, every one of us has a helmet called hope that protects us, And uh, it's the sure hope of Jesus' return and the promises associated with that that enable us to deal with the various trials and issues and circumstances that come our way in life. And so in Hebrews, this hope is called the anchor of our soul. Hold fast, right? Hold fast to the hope that's set before you. And so I just wanted to let you know, I plan to spend a couple more, a few more weeks, you know, to wrap up this uh, line of thinking and then we'll move on to something else. But I wanted to reiterate, if you have questions about this, I know not everybody, you know, some people really love talking about and thinking about uh, what the scriptures have to say about the future. And other people want to avoid it altogether for a number of reasons. It can be controversial and people have uh, issues and, and, and so on. And so I, I intend to just sort of finish this out and then uh, we'll move on to uh, something else. But... Jesus' return really is a critical doctrine. It's urgent, it's practical, it changes our priorities, and it's a vital part of the gospel. Abraham Lincoln, our 16th president, was speaking to a joint session of Congress a while ago uh, with some really good advice for our nation. And here's what he said, and I quote, If we could first know where we are and whither we are trending, that's how they spoke back in the 1800s, whither we are trending, okay, which is, you know, where we're going, right? Then we could better judge what to do and how to do it. If we knew where we are and we knew where we're going, then we could better live in the present, right? He's absolutely right. It's good advice. And that's what the scriptures do for us. They explain to us exactly where we're at. Right, We're between a place called the Garden of Eden and heaven. Right, We're between a place called the first coming of Jesus and the return of Jesus. This is where we're at. And the Bible is very good at telling us where we're going. Uh, points the direction, gives us uh, the prophetic scriptures, speak about what's going to happen in the future. And so God does that for us. And again, these two letters to the Thessalonian people are just chock full of how... Um, The second coming affects our living in our contemporary situation. So I wanted to just kind of pose a couple of questions uh, and suggest to you that um, what would change the way we live more than knowing where we were going? Like, for example, what would change your attitude toward death? If you simply knew that someday you're going to rise right out of that grave when Jesus comes back and that he's got a future for us, that's eternal. What changes your attitude toward that reality? Uh, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, lay up treasure for yourself in heaven. And then he tells us there's no moths, there's no uh, rust, and there's no hackers, there's no thieves that try to steal your money when you lay it up in heaven. And I think, what would change your mind to make treasures in heaven, your primary investment in life, like knowing what's going to happen in the future and how we're going to be ushered into heaven and and what Christ has done for us that will play itself out uh, when he comes back. What would change us like knowing what's going to happen And, uh, you know, what would would help us to set our minds on things above rather than on this world? Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. I just read for you that, you know, all our stuff's going to burn up, right? And so what would change your mind towards how we're living today in terms of our possessions and so forth more than knowing what's going to happen? We're looking for a new heavens and a new earth that we're going to inherit. And what a glorious description we get in the scriptures uh, from a number of places and so forth. But we can't hope in what we don't know. How can you put your hope in something you don't know what's going to happen? But when God comes and reveals and promises us what's going to happen, all of a sudden this living hope that God would uh, stoke within us becomes a, a factor in our present everyday living. And so I've been suggesting to you that if we approach the prophetic parts of the Bible in their most natural, normal, face value way, the way almost all Christians approach Old Testament prophecy about the first coming of Jesus, you know, from our vantage point now, we look back and we say, oh, yeah, the Bible said he was gonna be born in Bethlehem. That wasn't just symbolism, he was actually born in Bethlehem. Oh, yeah, the Bible says he was going to be born of a virgin. Oh, that didn't have some mystical, allegorical meaning. That's what happened. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, and so on and so forth. And we look back at these prophetic things, and if we would approach the Prophetic scriptures about the second coming the same way we now do because we have the advantage of being on the other side and seeing how God lays out for us what to expect. And if we would take the scriptures in their most normal, natural, uh, face value way, then I think, you know, most Christians would agree or do agree, people who treat the scriptures that way, that there are a number of really momentous events that are associated with Christ's return. And we've been looking at these, especially from the lips of Jesus in Matthew chapter 24. And uh, a number of things will literally take place during the end times. What Christians don't agree so much on is the timing of these events in their relationship to each other. And oftentimes we don't agree who is being talked about. Is this Israel? Is this the church? Is this Israel and the church? Uh, What are we talking about here? And so forth. And so it takes some study and comparing Scripture with Scripture uh, to figure some of that out. Uh, But there will be, I think most all Christians agree, a terrible time. Matthew 24, Jesus says, uh, there will be a time uh, that's called the Great Tribulation, Jesus said. Remember we uh, saw from the book of Daniel in the Old Testament that there's this seven-year period of time at the end of the age. Uh, Jesus' return and the end of history as we know it and the beginning of a new chapter, uh, you know, are associated together. And uh, when we we can find that in scripture, but there's a number of things that happen. There's an apostasy, a, a falling away of the church. And I think, wow, if that's really true, what do I have to do to get myself ready so that I'm not part of that? I don't want to be a part of uh, these Christians who, you know, are Christians when it's fair weather, but when uh, the uh, struggles come up, when Satan ratches it up a notch, you know, uh, am I going to take a stand or am I going to be part that kind of caves in and goes along with the crowd? And what do I have to do today to get ready for that if it were to happen uh, in the course of my lifetime? Uh, there will be this falling away. There will be the rapture of the church. How cool is that going to be? Uh, The Bible promises that you and I will never face the wrath of God if we're believers in Jesus. We never have to worry. You know, we always talk about being saved, and you ask the question, well, what are we saved from? Well, we're saved from the wrath of God that we deserve. And all through the Bible, from the Old Testament all the way through the New, there's a day coming that the Bible talks about called the Day of the Lord, absolutely horrible time and different from everything else in that seven-year period, this is God's judgment. You know, people often ask, you know, well, if God is so holy and God is so powerful, why does he do something about our crazy world? Well, he has. He sent Christ, and he's reconciling, given people a chance to reconcile with him, but there is a day coming when he will say that's enough, and his judgment will come against everything that's evil, and the scriptures talk about that, but you and I will be raptured, the true church, taken off the earth before God's judgment begins to fall on all the evil and everything that's wrong and what a great thought that is that you know I, I I will never have to encounter the wrath of God because Jesus took my place on the cross and endured the wrath of God for me for my sin not that I don't deserve the wrath of God or any of us right but that Jesus stepped in and took that wrath for us and uh You know, and then on and on we can go with a a number of different events, but there will be this uh, terrible day on the earth and uh, Jesus says, you know, it'll be a hard day. And again, uh, from our perspective, you know, we can look back and, um, you know, in, in Daniel's day, when Daniel wrote some of this, at the very end of Daniel, in Daniel chapter 12, you know what God told him? He said, listen, seal up the words of this prophecy and lock up the book, until the end times because people won't be able to understand and then when jesus comes right jesus is the light of the world he brings light into our understanding and we're able to begin to understand and jesus himself in matthew chapter 24 attaches his uh teaching directly to daniel's prophecy and we see this kind of opening up and we begin to uh, be able to understand it and um uh God told Daniel, you know, lock this up until the time of the end. And it's not until Jesus comes. You remember uh, Isaiah says, the people who walk in darkness have seen a great light when Jesus came the first time. And uh, so there's a story behind the story of our everyday lives. And uh, that story is God's story that started way back in the Garden of Eden. And um, when Satan showed up and challenged God's rightful ownership of of his creation and so uh we were uh taking if you remember we were taking matthew 24 and what jesus taught and comparing it to what is revealed in revelation when the apostle john was called up into heaven and he saw what was going on in heaven while jesus is talking about what's going on on the earth and we saw the parallels and you know uh you might say, well, who cares, or why is that important? And again, I would say the chronology that the Bible reveals uh, helps us to understand, you know, where uh, in this seven year period these events fall. And if we take the scriptures to be our uh, guide in this, and we uh, turn to Matthew uh, chapter 24 and we read again what Jesus said, we see that. You know, where we left off when we last talked about this, we were right to the midpoint of those seven years. And uh, we saw how the first uh, half of the seven-year period, Jesus calls the beginning of sorrows or the beginning of birth pangs. Remember? And uh, then the second half, he calls the great tribulation. And Jesus, quoting Daniel, says, you know, right in the middle of the seven-year period, 1260 days, 42 months, You know, time, times, and a half time. uh, Right in the middle, there's this thing that Jesus calls the abomination of desolation. And it refers, according to Daniel and Jesus, to this uh, world figure that the the Bible calls the Antichrist or the man of lawlessness. There's a number of names for him, but there will be this figure uh, who then um, demands the worship of the world. Jesus calls it the abomination of desolation. And the scriptures are specific in saying that he will set himself up in the temple in Jerusalem so there will be a rebuilt temple and he will demand uh, the worship of the world. And that will be a terrible time. Uh, Jesus says this in verse 15 of Matthew chapter 24, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. When you see, Remember the disciples that initiated this conversation from Jesus. They said, Lord, what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? That was their question. What will be the sign? And here's Jesus answering them. And he's saying, when you see this happen, when you see it, get out of town. And Jesus is like, you know, you you can read, uh, fill in the blanks here, but. Uh, and then Jesus goes on and here's what he says for then there will be great tribulation such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now and never will be again bad time now the Antichrist this is not the judgment of God this is the judgment of Satan right this is uh, Satan having his one last hurrah, according to Revelation chapter 12, thrown down to the earth, uh, trying to usurp God's uh, authority just like he did in the garden, trying to get God's people, you know, that God created to uh, be like himself and to lure them away uh, under his control and influence. And Jesus says, This will be such a terrible time, great tribulation. And uh, so when we, again, compare this to um, Revelation, when we go to Revelation chapter 6, where the seals, remember in Revelation chapter 5, John is in heaven and they're in the throne room of God the Father and the God the Father in his right hand has a scroll and the scroll has seven seals on it. And the scroll, I think of it as the deed of the creation but it can't be opened and can't be read and can't be executed, if you will, until these seals are broken. And each one of these seals reveals a further step in what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24. And so uh, we, we did the first four of those seals and saw how they compared to the first half of this seven-year period. And uh, when we get to the fifth seal, uh, the fifth seal is the martyrs under the altar. You remember this? And uh, again, it corresponds to what Jesus says is going to be great tribulation. This antichrist figure is out to eliminate anybody who will not worship him as God. And you can, you know, read more of this. Uh, but uh, here's here's how uh, John described it from Revelation chapter six. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those. Who had been slain for the word of god and for the witness they had borne so again jesus great tribulation is coming the abomination of desolation john in revelation is like wow you know i opened that seal and there are a lot of people martyred for their faith right they, they go together and uh you can see that and then uh again back in uh uh matthew chapter 24 uh, Jesus goes on, and it's kind of cool. Uh, this, uh, I think, is very revealing. But Jesus said there would be this great tribulation. And, uh, and then the next verse, he says, And if those days of the great tribulation had not been cut short, if those days had not been cut short, uh, the literal word there is amputated. If those days had not been amputated, no human being would be saved but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. For the sake of God's people, that period of time will not last the full three and a half years. It starts right at the middle of that seven year period, but it doesn't go all the way to the end because Jesus said it's amputated. So again, now you, know, you might say um, that most people think there's just two parts to that last seven years. There's the first half and the second half, but I'd suggest to you there's also a third part and uh, I think what, what cuts short this terrible time is the rapture of the church. Let's just keep reading here a little bit. Uh, then Jesus says, he says, if anybody says to you, look, here's the Christ or there's the Christ, don't fall for it, for false Christ. False prophets will arise, perform great signs and wonders. Um, That's just an aside, but it occurred to me, uh, I, I know... Um, Many of us are kind of watching uh, The Chosen and, um, you know, it's produced by the Mormons and uh, you want to ask yourself, is the Christ that's being portrayed, the Christ that I understand from scripture, or is the Christ that's being portrayed a false impression of Christ like Jesus was talking about here? And other movies we could talk about, other, you know, books and different things and so forth. Is the Bible really our plumb line? for understanding Christ, and uh, that's just an aside. But anyway, and then Jesus talks about it like this. Uh, you know, He begins to say, um, For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Um, great tribulation, next verse, immediately after the tribulation of those days immediately after, immediately after the tribulation of those days, okay, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, the powers of the heaven uh, will be shaken, and then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Um, immediately after that Tribulation period, imagine this, right? The sun, the moon, and the stars, all, all, everything goes dark. And then all of a sudden, in the sky, uh, the glory of Jesus in all of his glory appears. How cool is that going to be? Against that black, dark background. And all the world will see him when he's coming. How cool will that be? Well, how's it going to work? Uh, next verse. He will be in the air. He will send his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds, one end of heaven to the other. That sounds like the rapture to me, right? Jesus will be in the air, send his angels to collect people, uh, all of his people and take them off the earth because why? Because right after this comes the day of the Lord, the judgment of God and the true church will not be here for the judgment of God. And so, again, if we go to Revelation and, uh, you know, kind of ask John, uh, what's next? What's the next seal, if you will, in um, Revelation chapter 6, uh, here's, he says exactly what Jesus said. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake. The sun became black, uh, the full moon like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree sheds its winter fruit and so on and so forth. The exact thing that Jesus says, John is saying, uh, I'm trying to show that Revelation is not really that hard to understand. And if you put it next to what Jesus says in Matthew 24 and just kind of parallel it, you'll see uh, they're both saying the same thing. And it enables us to develop uh, a kind of hope as to knowing what's coming uh, in the future and adjusting, again, our living uh, by it, this cosmic disruption. And then uh, in Revelation, between the sixth chapter... Okay, and the eighth chapter is the seventh chapter. Two things happen in Revelation chapter seven between the sixth seal and the last seal, which is the day of the Lord. Okay, so uh, the two things that happen. Number one, 144,000 Jewish people are sealed and protected from this time of judgment. You can read that in chapter seven. And what I think's really, really cool is the second part of chapter seven shows the raptured church showing up in heaven. I mean, it's just uh, uh, pretty cool when you uh, read this, you know, the second part talking about the church. I looked and behold, there was a huge multitude that nobody could number from every nation, from all the tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne of the Lamb, clothed in white, palm branches in their hands, crying with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And then one of the elders john says ask me a question who are these people one of the elders in heaven right asks john who are all these people and john says you know uh sir you know and uh, in other words john's like i'm not sure you know and you tell me and then he goes on and says these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation these are the ones who were raptured out right out of the great tribulation uh, that uh, the Lord spoke about and that John speaks about here and so forth. And so that's pretty cool. And then finally, we get to the last seal, and it's in the eighth um, chapter, and it says this. uh, Revelation chapter 8, verse 1, When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for a half an hour. This is the day of the Lord. And then you go on and read, and you'll see there are seven trumpet judgments, terrible things happen on the earth. We're not here, right? We're delivered from this is God's wrath now, not Satan's wrath. There's a big difference. The whole seven years is not the same thing. And once we understand that and know where to kind of divide that, all of a sudden we get it, you know, that, wow, we're not going to be here for this. And you read what's going to happen, and you're, like, so thankful. And you can put your hope in that. And you can know I'm never gonna have to face you know, the brunt of God's wrath because that's what happened on the cross. In my place, God vented that anger and wrath and hatred for sin that was my sin on Jesus. And he took my place and he suffered and, and died in my place and so forth. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.9 says, God has not destined us for wrath but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, and so <clears throat> the seven trumpets are blown, the seven bowls are you know poured out, and god 's judgment and Again, you can read that, but I'd just like to close with one thought here: I want to say that all that this agrees exactly with what Paul wrote to the Thessalonian church, and uh, just uh, try to listen to this carefully because. Uh, Again, it has to do with the timing, and the timing has to do with our lives and where we fit uh, into all of this. But here's what Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica. He said, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Talk about the second coming. Concerning the coming of our Lord and our being gathered together to him. Sounds like the rapture. Brothers, don't be quickly shaken in your mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to have come from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. In one sentence, we have the coming of the Lord, the rapture of the church, and the day of the Lord's judgment. All in one sentence here, Paul you know, is writing to this church. And he says, let nobody deceive you in any way for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first, the apostasy, and the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God proclaiming himself to be God. Exactly what Paul is teaching here is the exact same thing that Jesus teaches in the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24, and what uh, John reveals from Revelation. So when all of this jives together and all the scriptures you know, comment on each other and all of a sudden it starts to gel, uh, all of a sudden we have this hope that wells up within us that, wow, we have been given a gift. We have a fabulous future. The gift of salvation is bigger than we think. And and it's going to be played out in real life. You know, these are real issues. Just like Christmas was prophesied, the first coming of Jesus, so the second coming of Jesus is laid out for us so that we might embrace the hope which builds our faith and makes us more loving people like Jesus. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I'm so thankful that you're a speaking God. I'm so thankful that you're not silent, that we don't have to speculate, that we don't have to make up things, but that you want to reveal yourself. You want to be known. And when we look at the way that you talked about Jesus' first coming, and then we apply that to the way you talk about Jesus' second coming, uh, it enables us, Father, to envision and to imagine uh, what it would be like to be saved. What it would be like to benefit from Jesus' grace. What it would be like to live in the shadow of the cross in anticipation of this same Jesus coming back. What a great day that's going to be. And Father, how you've provided for us. And then to think even beyond all of this to heaven. And I pray, Father, that uh, as, as we allow your spirit to uh, marinate us with these truths, that you would free us, Father, from fear, that you would free us from trivial pursuits, that you would uh, enable us, Father, to uh, see what's coming and what we can do today to contribute to what we will be tomorrow. And so, again, we thank you, Father, that you're a God of the past, the present, and the future. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Amen.